This is the Griot Podcast, and I'm your host, Akeem Griot. On this episode, I'm joined by the award-winning poet, Reggie Gibson. Reggie is a national poetry slam champion, a songwriter, author, and educator. The classic film, Love Jones, was based on his life. All right, this is a little something I've been working on. It's new. I call it uh, a blues for Nina. So we caught up to talk poetry, Love Jones, and so much more. My father introduced me to a film called Love Jones when I was a young man. Okay. And she's did. still a young man, brother. I'm still a young man. You, you <laughs> preach, preach, man, preach. <laughs> um, yeah, he 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 got me into Love Jones, and I kind of saw, I saw Lorenz Tate go up there and deliver deliver that poem, and I said to myself, I've always loved writing. I've always kind of seen it, but never really thought I could actually go out and yeah. do it. You know, and I think mm-hmm. seeing him deliver that poem so beautifully gave me some kind of, oh, I don't know, energy or, or just yeah. the, the confidence to be able to say, actually, I can go up and open mic and deliver something. Talk Great. to me about your involvement in Love Jones. And, and yeah. yeah, talk to me, tell happen- me that story. Would be happy to. Um, well, that, that started, I'm going to go just back a bit. Um, that started uh, from a place called Spices. And that's what Love Jones, the, the movie, the, um, the club there, uh, was attempting to emulate the, this club called Spices that was happening in Chicago at the time. What happened for me was um, my, my then um, girlfriend, we, we had left we were in the house and a friend of mine called me up and said, hey, Reggie, you still doing poetry? I'm like, oh, son, but I put it kind of away. He says, man, there's this joint you got to check out named Spices. He gave me the address. I said, all right, cool. Went and checked it out, walked in, and I was like, oh, my God, right? There was a sister who was on the stage with this big afro, so big it was messing with the lights, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> and, and, Get up, and, and, <laughs> Her name was Maria McRae. She's very important to me. I'll take to her in a second. And she was just giving it up, man, like the first woman from the Savannah, you know what I mean? <laughs> just, just stood up, stood up on that ancient Savannah, and bam, just brought, like, down the thunder. And I was like, oh, my God. You know, and then these other cats got on. It was drumming and what. And I'm like, okay, all right, all right. Somebody somebody hand me the pipe. I'm taking a big old hit of this, you know. <laughs> and uh, and so I went home that night, bro, and started, like, breaking out old stuff. And and I, for two weeks, I just started writing. And I came back, and Maria McRae, she was uh, she was the person that, that night who was taking, taking the names, right? And I was so nervous. I walked up to her, and I was like, I got my papers, right? I'm like, uh, yeah, um... Hi, um, um, she says, you'd like to read. I went, I went, yeah. And she says, okay, name. I went, um, R- Reggie Gibson. She says, all right, Reggie Gibson. All right, fine. And she wrote, she wrote it down. You're number 19. I says, okay, cool. Walked away. As people started going up, I started seeing how good everybody was. And I was like, oh my God, I can't go up there. So I walked back to her, Akeem, and I went, um, Look, um, if if there's somebody else, you know, who, who who wants to go ahead, you know, you could just take my name off and it's cool. Yeah. And she says, "What's your name again?" And I went, "Reggie Gibson." She says, "Number 19." Yeah, you going next? <laughs> I 
And I said a very, I turned around under my breath and said a not very so nice word. Right, <laughs> okay. right, right. <laughs> and, and, and later on, she became one of my besties, man. And rest her soul. This sister saw I was about to head for the hills. Mm. And she was like, oh, hell no. You going up on that stage now. Now, what happened that night is a brother who was in the audience named Ted Witcher, right, saw me doing my thing. This is the guy who later began, became the writer and the, and the director of Love Jones. He liked my work and he came to me, you know, a couple years later after we had done some stuff and he says, hey, Reg, man, I'm, I'm writing this thing and I'm thinking about, about maybe having some of your poetry with it. And I says, okay, let's, let's talk about that. And he said, I just got this idea. And he was, a, at that time, man, he was, a, he was a security guard for Jerry Springer. I don't know if you ever heard of the Jerry Springer show. It was course, a show here in the United yeah, States. Yeah, yeah. He was a security guard for the Jerry Springer show. Wow. He says, I, I think I got the script, man. I, you know, I'm going to be trying to push it. I'm like, all right, man, bet. I says, hey, I'm going to be going away to Amsterdam. I'm going to Europe in a couple of weeks. That's like, if something happens, let me know. So it happened, right? Brother, brother um, it came through. And he was like, I, I need some of your work, man. Send it to me. All right, cool. And that's how it went down. And then, and then he, you know, he did interviews with me to just get sort of the right stuff and everything as far as the life and all that. And, um, and it was, it was a, a thrilling experience for me. I'd never been in a movie before, had never, especially anything that was like having me in my life as a central character, you know, as central to the character in this. So I had to work with Lorenz Tate. Yeah. He had watched videos of me doing my thing. If you notice, you know, you watch him in the film, he's going to his ear, tugging his ear. It's like, he that's because that was a nervous tick I had. Uh, and he, I guess he took on my nervous tick and said, oh, that's what poets do. Um, <laughs> you know, and, um, and, so, and so I think he did a, did a fine job with it, you know. And, and what was happening with the story is that, that even that was sort of taken because I had been off the scene for a minute. That first woman I had told you about yeah. when went to me, we had broken up. And so I had became, become celibate. You're right for about for almost a year and didn't go back and didn't do any poetry and the the day i sort of the night i came back me and this woman who was just who had just gotten out of the the, the air force and she was a medical student just sort of locked eyes and it was like okay you know what i'm saying yeah and so we just looked at each other next thing you know we start going back and forth with one another and we had this great sort of love affair and <laughs> ted kind of took it and she left me to go back to 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 her man who she had sort of broken up with and just to just to say goodbye and when she left i was like well hey if you try to put a brother on the back burner i'm gonna have a couple more pots cooking with me you know what i'm saying <laughs> and so and so <laughs> and so she went back to california she wasn't from new york she went back to california broke off with him came back to me we reformed and got back with each other and wow. stayed together for a couple years after that. So, wow. so yeah, there was a lot of, of what, of what Ted pulled from real life that wound up being in it. And it was a beautiful time. And, and because of that, you know, Ted was able to write up to make a movie out of it. And somehow people still seem to love it. It's a fantastic movie. Just to be clear. So you wrote the poem, correct? Is that right? The poem that Lorenz Tate does. Yes. I wrote that poem. The poem is longer <laughs> than, than what was, than what was there. Some of it ended up on the cutting room floor, but yeah. that was also an exploration of, of spirituality and sexuality. Um, we talked about, you know, I, I had to fight to make sure that, that Oshun and the, and the Yemeya and all of that yeah, was kept, yeah. was kept in because other than that, it's just a dude macking on a woman. And I was like, no, <laughs> I was like, no, 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 man. We gotta, we gotta bring but, it to but, another level. But Reg, talk to me though. Spinning yeah. pulsar. Yeah. Can you can you can you flesh that out for me? Well, let me see if I can remember the line. Um, I think it was was about the the pulsar itself being something that was sending out no. signals. For me, there was um, this thing of 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 com comparing this woman to something that was extraordinarily rare, even in our universe, right. but something with such power 
right that was sending out signals right that she was that she was sort of a, a representation of of that thing of such gravity and mm -hmm. such ferocity and such power right okay. um she was she was a woman manifestation of, wow. of of that of that so okay. that that's where i believe i was heading at the time with that when when we were going back and forth but it was also this thing of of black women having that kind of power um, you know, that power of attraction, but also that power of sending something out and sending out a light that you can, that you can chart yourself by, you know, pulsars are these beacons that basically we can, we can chart things by in, 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 in the universe. And, and she was, uh, that person being spoken about is, is, is something by which we chart, by which I, as a young man was charting myself, my, the do universe you, of myself by. Do you appreciate how important that piece is? <laughs> People tell just, me that. Some, sometimes I just need to ask because it's like you've written this piece. Sometimes I know you've written loads of pieces, but it's just do, do, do you do you appreciate do you appreciate that the impact it's had on people? I, I think twenty years on, um, it, it's sort of hitting me when people like you are coming back and saying <laughs> it. You know what I mean? And like my partner Marlon, who was like the same way. He was like, "Dude, man, that that started me." And I'm like, "For real?" You know? Damn, yeah. And 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 I'm like, "Well, I'm I'm glad it did, right?" And so that it was a it was a mixture of Again, spirituality and sexuality and music and and you know right now I'm the blues in your left thigh trying to be the funk, funk in your right you know, right. Know, you know bringing it back to 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 our sensuality our sexuality but also the history of music and the African diaspora you know mm -hmm. um, so so the the fact that people pull toward it man I'm gratified you know I'm really um, I'd rather try to move through this world as a healing agent than a disease nice. and when people come back to me and say this is what that did for me it makes me feel as though I'm moving through the world as a healing agent rather than a disease yeah. and so those are the things that sort of remind me of that and I appreciate being reminded of that Amen I myself I write I write yeah. poetry I've been writing on scraps of paper since I can remember hmm. um, I just wanted to start with, with yourself and how you got sure. into writing and what your journey was into such a, an amazing and magical thing my great-grandfather, uh, Robert Jordan, he was illiterate and he couldn't read and he couldn't write. And so what he would do is he would make up stories and songs as mnemonic devices to, to help with his memory, to help him to remember where things were and what to do and all of that. And um, so he would also make up stories for my brother and I, and he would sing songs to us. And, and um, I remember once it, when we were young, I think this is the point that got me, my great granddad was was in the kitchen of this house he built, and he was singing a song of his. Uh, I am working now, huh, all day long, Lord. Huh, here comes the sun, huh, traveling tracks of sky. Huh, oh, oh, Lord. Huh. And I remember that song. And my great grandmother uh, was in the front of the house, and she was singing a gospel song that she that she had always sang. I want Jesus to walk with me. I want Jesus to walk with me all along life's pilgrim journey. I want Jesus to walk with me. And and I was about six years old. My brother was five. And we were sitting in, a, in, a, in another room, in the bedroom, and we heard, you know, as we heard these two songs come together, like mixed to each other. And we just looked at each other, right? Like, what was that? For in my head, the way I tell it is that is that it's sort of like those songs they called to me when they mixed together. There was my my great granddad's secular work song and my great grandmother's spiritual love song, and so they they came together and it was sort of like a 
you know, I am working, Jesus walk with ha, traveling tracks of all along life. And, and it blew my head, whatever that sound was. And I'd say, I think I've been journeying back to whatever that sound was, you know, ever since, ever since what it was that arrested me. And it's very interesting, my brother and I joke about it, that I remember so vividly that feeling that came over me. And all my brother could, could remember that got him was, the, the thing that was most present for him was the smell of bacon. <laughs> you know <Right. laughs> and and so i so we just said hey man maybe that's why i'm a better poet and he's a better cook okay you know? okay okay those formative experiences you know so so you'd say that the church has a huge influence on your writing on your upbringing and, and how you you know your journey into writing is that fair to say i would say that it had it had um a huge influence in 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 um formulating history thought sound um, as I said, my grandfather, my great granddad was secular. He didn't have much, much use for that. My great grandmother was one of those people who would every other, you know, sentence she made was punctuated with Jesus. She had Jesus Tourette's, I would say. <laughs> and, and so, so, so I had both of those. And, you know, and when I was growing up, my mother and my father, my mother was a very spiritual, deeply believing woman. My father was, was, you know, for a significant amount of time, my growing up was a police officer who didn't have much truck with that at all you know his thing was you got to be out there in the streets doing something my mother was hey you got to be on your knees praying so i think that that both of those those histories that both the spiritual the sacred and the secular um found their found their 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 home in me so it's really interesting you say that because i i trained at drama school and i believe i have uh, a calling to do that but basically when i went to university I decided I didn't want to let my parents down by doing drama at university. So I picked mm -hmm. English and drama and mixed those two together, which I was strong at in school. And I chose mm -hmm. journalism. And here we are today. I'm doing podcasts. I'm, I'm a mm -hmm. journalist and, and all that good stuff. Right. But I believe my heart is in the arts and acting and performing. So right. I did that to kind of not let them down per se. How was it for you saying to your parents, actually, I want to go into to writing and, and expression. <laughs> what, what was that like and how did they um, receive that? That is an excellent question. It, basically, I became a poet and writer um, in opposition to my parents. Right. It, was, it, was, it was in a sense of defiance. They were not supportive in any way whatsoever of this when it was something that I started to look at as being serious, more and more serious. For my mother, um, I think she was fine with the idea that I wrote and did poetry. Right. She was OK with that when I was younger until um, she came home with with a book of science fiction. And um, I had tried to to rewrite the book of Revelations by adding, you know, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. I had had a fifth horseman that was the uh, was a woman who was the element of time. And as usual, you know, how it is when you, you, you write something, you want to go and show your parents. So I went to my mom. It's like, Mom, check this out. And she looked at it and she went. Ooh, it certainly is demonic, isn't it? Well, you know, <laughs> when, when she said that, I just kind of, you know, put things away for a while, you know, and was like, well, I just, you know, I forgot that saying that mother is the name for God on the lips of all children, something like that. And it's like, so here it was, I had scared the most powerful being sort of in my life mm -hmm. and who had basically told me I had done a bad thing. So, um, so I had put it away for a while until I got into to high school. I was about 13, 14 years of age and started to fall in love with, with uh, Romeo and Juliet. I found myself being a flaming, blatant heterosexual 
who loved women but could not convince them to love me back. <laughs> and so <laughs> we've all been there. We've oh, been brother. There. <laughs> oh, brother. You know, and so, you know, digging up on that. My, but it was interesting because my mom would also bring home these books, right? She was, she was always a believer that we should know about the world, just not participate in it, that kind of thing. Right. And so she would bring, bring in these books, you know, that was um, later would become the seeds of, of me leaving her religious belief and harking on to more of an artistic uh, intellectual pursuit, you know, and, um, but in that box of books was the complete works of William Shakespeare. Okay. And, um, and said being a horny 13 year old, the only thing I knew was Romeo and Juliet. So I dove in and checked it out, you know, could get some of it, you know, but, but kind of dug the poetry. What I really got was how Romeo had the kind of sack that could just walk up to a woman and start spitting game at her. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> you know, you know, he walks up in the house, man, everybody's hating on him and whatnot, but you know, he's heart sick, but he's also, then he sees Juliet. Next thing you know, he steps to her like this Mac daddy and starts putting a smooth <laughs> on her. You know, if I profane with my unworthiest hand, this holy shrine, what gentle sin is this? My lips to blushing pilgrims ready stand to smooth this rough touch with a gentle kiss. And then Juliet comes back, right? She's like, good pilgrim, you do wrong your hand do much. It's like, okay, she's like, I got game too and so <laughs> and so here they're right they, they get into this sonnet back and forth where they do this sort of part of the and i'm like whoa you know what i'm saying at that moment i was like damn you know i'm hooked i was exposed very early on to poetry proper by a woman named gwendolyn brooks who was the first african-american to win the pulitzer prize for for poetry and she came into our third grade class because she was the poet laureate of chicago and, wow and so yeah she came into our third grade class and the first piece she gave us she, she walked us through was a poem by a guy named carl sandberg and it was a little 21 19 or 21 word poem about uh, called um um, the fog. And it was all about comparing the fog to a cat creeping in on little cat's feet. And so she was talking about tone and how it made us feel. And, you know, isn't it strange to compare the fog to a living creature and blah, blah, blah. And so, and so she, in effect, became looking back on my life, what was my first poetry teacher properly, prop improper. So, uh, so I had been exposed to poetry, but I had not been exposed to, to Shakespeare in that sense. But, you know, Shakespeare is somebody who was just in the atmosphere. It's just all around and that was my entry into that my favorite musician is gil scott heron a rat done bit my sister nell with whitey on the moon her face and arms began to swell and whitey's on the moon i can't pay no doctor bills and um i think my dad played I can't remember what tune it was. Maybe it was YT on the moon, maybe. Um, <laughs> Great tune. And it, it just, I just kind of went, did my own independent research and just said, yeah. no, this, is, this is the guy, he speaks to me. You know, there's a lot of music yeah. going around, but this guy speaks to me. Mm -hmm. In terms of your influence, because he, I remember Gil speaking about County Cullen and mm -hmm. Langston Hughes and, and all those guys. What, in your home or, or just in your early ages and early years, what were you exposed to that kind of, introduced you to, to poetry per se. Langston Hughes was ubiquitous because because I grew up in Chicago and Chicago was was also an epicenter of one of the renaissance of black people here in the United States. It was a Chicago renaissance. So Langston Hughes, who was who was also part of both the Chicago and the Harlem Renaissance, he was he was noted for both, was um, was a person whose work was just always around and always given to us in school. What what I would say really spoke and really hit me was around the time of Gil Scott Heron, who I didn't really recognize as a poet. He was he was a song he, he was a singer, and it was a song he had called Angel Dust. Wow, yeah. And um and it so that's how I got introduced to him as a singer, and just the um, 
because we were dealing with with the the you know outcropping of drugs and all of that stuff in the neighborhood in the post 1960s early 1970s angel dust was becoming huge in in my neighborhood and this was a guy who was singing to the reality of what it was that I was dealing with. It was only later after that when I found out that he was quite a hell of a poet and one of the, the uh, progenitors of what, of what would later to become called rap. He really spoke to me and to the reality of what I was dealing with. Langston spoke to the history of where we had come from. Yeah. Gil Scott Heron spoke to the, to the present reality of what we had to deal with. And then after getting introduced to him, the last poets, the white prophets, watch right. prophets and those cats. You mentioned the reality um, and that, that brings me to a point I thought we were going to reach later in the interview, but we're here okay. now. So we've landed. We're going right. to fly. We're going to run with it. We, we're dealing with a time where we've just lost um, uh, an important figure, a father, uh, a family member, a loved one in George Floyd. He passed. Uh -huh. He was murdered. Yep. And I feel like it shook certain parts of the world and has opened up conversations. And I believe and hope that it will help start to create change across the world in terms of policing, brutality, racism, etc. It's just a start. We've seen small mm -hmm. things that have happened, but I hope that it will, it will generate mm -hmm. some change. In terms of that reality, that backdrop, have you been writing uh, to reflect that? Because myself, I've been almost, almost, uh, what's the word? I feel like I've been uh, numbed by it all. I feel like my pen has dried up and I don't feel like I've had that Right. that expression in me what about yourself what's it been like for you yeah well it, it's it's been it's been tough you know we're we're closer to the epicenter of that you know and and um but it's it's a thing that people who look like us you know have to deal with and yeah. and and it can be as you say pen drying and so here's here's a young man dying dying under the at the behest of the state or by by an agent of the state he's calling out to his mother reminds me of the other another young man who died at the behest of the state called out to his father and that's why he had he been forsaken mm -hmm. and so and so it was it was a heavy thing because i recognized george george floyd as 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 anybody who i grew up with i have this this poem that i did write and it was um, not specifically addressed by, by uh, addressing Floyd, but but he's definitely part of the spirit of it. And it's um, it's it's called from old heads to young bloods and advice advice from black men to those who will be. Um, it's it's based on what we African Americans. I'm sure that you over there in England have it too. Uh, those of us who are a certain hue have something called the talk, mm -hmm. and that talk that we have here is essentially trying to get black men in particular to understand how to survive in enemy in what is often enemy territory. And my grandfather had it with my father. My father had it with me and my brother. I've had to have it with both of my sons. And um, it's a piece that 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 I had written for them. And then I started doing it in schools. And then so many young black men were coming to me like, dude, can't I need that piece. And so I says, okay, so I started crowdsourcing. I started calling up brothers who I knew and talking to them about this and getting some of their advice and their input about what they were told and how that was passed on to them. And I started writing that piece. And 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 one of the parts in the piece speaks about how um, how some of your friends who are not black like you may not understand or which, what it is you're going through and others won't give a damn what it is you're going through. So be careful of who you know, who you let know what's killing you, right? And it speaks about this whole thing of of some will, will will watch you die and will try to justify it and try to say you deserved it. Right. And I see that hitting so close to home 
you know, people saying, well, he was a criminal or he was this. It's always, it's an idea of let's not blame the state. Let's not blame a killer cop. Let's try some way to blame it on this individual. And for me, it's like if we, if we stay silent, it's one thing to take a hit, you know, but if we stay silent, we allow other people to define us and to fill in that, 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 that vacuum with what it is that they want, want to say about who we are and, and what we're about. So it, it sort of spurred me on to be, to be more and more like, okay, you know, I'm, I'm fighting an enemy, right? But at the same time, well, I have to fight this enemy. Um, I also have to think about, you know, do triage, you know, on folks who look like me and figure out how do I, how do I keep us sane in a, in, a, in a situation that leaves us so traumatized. Within a show all about George Floyd, and, and I think one of the parts that I was really interested in is you mentioned it there, that intergenerational conversation. So what your, your grandfather told your father, what you're telling your children, et cetera, that, that intergenerational, intergenerational mm-hmm. conversation. How was that conversation for you? Because I spoke to my dad about it and he said to me, sign is something that I've been talking to you about since as soon as you could really, you know, understand things. Mm-hmm. It's, it's an ongoing conversation. It's not, not going to start just when some, some um, tragedy happens. So what was that conversation like for, for you and your sons? Well, for me and my sons, it was it was actually, as your dad had said, talking to them all along and then mm-hmm. sitting them down when certain situations occur and saying, notice how what it is I've told you, how that plays out here, right? This winds up becoming an example of what it was I was telling them, so it's no longer an abstraction. This is how what I've told you looks. This mm-hmm. is what happens. Let's unpack this. Because if you don't unpack this, you walk through with this trauma and you never really call it out. So understand you will see this again. I pray that you do not, but I know, but I've been living long enough to know differently. Yeah. You will see this again and you will get these subtle and atmospheric messages telling you who you are and what you are not. And I've told my sons, look, you need to be careful of let you, of who you, who sees you cry, but your father, I'm the man you are never, you should never be afraid to cry in front of. You bring your tears to my lap. That's what you do, okay? Because it's gonna get hard for you moving through this world. And my job is to help put starch in your spine. Okay, so you bring it to me. Salute, salute. I wanted to touch on another topic and Mm. it came out of a conversation I was having with my colleague. Uh, we, We worked together producing a radio program and we were talking about access to the arts. And when I was growing up, I, had, uh, I went to something called the Roundhouse, which is in a place mm. in London, uh, Northwest London, where there's lots of uh, events and lots of different arts involved in that organization. Sure. And I went on a course where I learned how to make music and we, we did songwriting, et cetera. That sounds um, great. <laughs> but, but I can't, yeah, it, it was amazing. It's a fantastic place. But I knew of that place because of my friend's mother who was kind of linked to it. And she's what we call in the UK, a middle-class woman. She's professional. Um, so she's got certain uh, access to maybe the mm-hmm. arts that other people mm-hmm. don't. And she was, and my colleague was saying to me, what about those that don't have access to the arts? What about those that are not connected? How do we reach those people? Because we often have these conversations and it's the same sort of people that have the access to the arts and went to the different organizations where the arts mm-hmm. are. Mm-hmm. How do we reach those that are not? And I wanted to address that to you because I know you do lots of work with young people going into schools and lecturing. So how do you get the arts to people that potentially don't have that initial access? 
You know, that's that's a great question. One of the things that I that I tend to like to do is to take things which come out of the classic repertoire and break it down into a modern sort of idiom, break it down in a sort of modern way. So in that way, we have connection to the ideas, and we, we can discuss them in, in our words. For instance, I have something I work up with, with a friend of mine named Marlon, the Shakespeare time-traveling speakeasy. Well, we do take some of the works of William Shakespeare, mix it with the with modern uh, idiom, and then talk back and forth with the students as a result, so that they recognize that that this stuff is also for you, right, but you have to know it and then transfer it into a way that you can understand it. We go to a lot of places. Um, for instance, if I'm doing something at Harvard University here, right, I will charge them more money so I can go to a place uh, that doesn't have the money and right. say this day is sponsored. <laughs> Right. by Harvard University yeah. because they got deep pockets and they could, they could afford to pay this and this is the way it is. Another thing I do for schools is if they want me and they can't afford me, if they've got a .org, was .org for us, which is nonprofit, I just say, this is what would be my fee. So I found that in doing that, I have reached to a lot more classes and a lot more places which couldn't afford to bring me in mm -hmm. uh, because they just don't have the PTO, the parent-teachers organizations that yeah. have those kinds of deep pockets in order to do that. There's also places that invite me in to do stuff, I ask them if we can, and, and I have started to be more and more demanding of this, to set aside scholarships, right, for people, for people who may not be able to afford, afford to be here. Yeah. And a couple of them have done that. They'll just set aside that scholarship. Okay, we've got two, we're saving two spots for this individual. We're saving two spots for people who come from this. What's the, some of the rewards that you've, you've seen from, from doing those outreach uh, programs? Man, People, kids matriculating into college who who previously, you know, were going for higher education, who who previously said, nah, forget it. It's not for me. Mm -hmm. That's the one of the biggest things is that is that through the arts, they've been spurred on to, to to desire more as far as intellectual knowledge and to actually submit themselves to a discipline of going through school. That's been great. Others have been people who've started uh, um, and been part of prison programs where they've gone, where they've done outreach into prison programs and also for, for younger people who are at risk and on their way to prison to sort of be preventative in that. Others, um, one young lady I'm, speak, I'm thinking about in particular, she decided to go into um, primary education to sort of stop the bleeding early, as early as possible. And there's been a couple of young men. Uh, young men typically uh, do not go into primary education, which is why it was astounding to me that it's been a couple of them who decided that they were going to go into primary education because they remember growing up, they saw no one who looked like them mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> being, being a male teacher in primary grades. I also wanted to get into your routine as a writer. I know everybody's mm -hmm. got their different... Um, sort of procedures and, mm. and things they go through. For you, what's, what's it like in terms of, does an idea come to your mind and you just write away? Or have you got, you know, you've got, you've got a mood board that you, you want to hit X amount of poems for the month? Like, talk to me, how's your, how's your process? Well, there, there, are, there are several processes um, that happen. And I guess it depends too on what it is I'm trying to write. For instance, if, if it's strictly, there's a lot of stuff I have to write, and then I have to, so I've developed sort of systems that might help me to get to a space of inspiration, even if I can't start from a space of inspiration. And so there are things that may lead me through that. One of the things I might do is, is um, I have a series of questions that I have for myself. And it's per about personal life. Of course, it's something that I took from Paulo Neruda's book of questions, which is more surreal, except those are, are more personal. The ones that I've written are more personal. And so what I would do with those is those maybe memories 
that I've had, I might go to one of those memories and I would add three things that a, a teacher of mine taught me uh, that every good piece of writing needs. It was chronology, geography, and furniture, right? Something, it happened at some time, it happened in some place, and give me some concrete details. And so what I start to do is I start unpacking that question, maybe something like, when was the last time you felt awe? Let's just say that's a question. And I'll start unpacking that, you know, giving it time, giving it place, giving it de concrete details based upon sensory input. And then I begin to build a little sort of, sort of nut there. Yeah. And then I can go about exploring that. And what I do in that situation is I tend to express it first in prose. I express it first in prose because I need to make sure that what I'm saying is understandable to myself. And I know what happens with many of us poets. We will tend to add metaphor on top of metaphor, on top of simile, on top of illusion. So that by the time we get done, we are the Willis. Everybody is wondering what you're talking about. Yeah. You know exactly. what I'm saying? Nobody knows what the hell you said. Even you don't know what the hell you said. <laughs> you know, and it's like, what did I mean by that? Hell, I don't know what I meant by that, you know? But if I just try to stick to saying something simply and clearly, then I can get a grasp of how to then bring it into the world of poetry. At that point in time, I, I, I might begin to say, okay, does this need rhyme? Does this need more metaphor? Does this need a simile? Do I need to put alliteration into this? Sibilance, consonants, assonance. What do I need to do to this? And so... There are four things that, that, I, that I, I, I look for as far as in a poem um, that I'm writing. I, and I get these from, from a guy I read years ago named Gregory Orr. His idea is that most poets have one of those really, really strongly and another one that also helps that out and, and it comes together. Wow. But the game should be about how do we try to get all four of those things in equal measure, okay. right? In equal measure in a piece. And, and uh, even though I can quibble with some of that stuff, I have found it very helpful to me when I'm going back over my work. And I've also found to have a rubric like that has been very helpful to my students, even when it comes down to not only critiquing their own work, but each other's work. Hey, this didn't hang together so much for me. Maybe you should try more, more story or more structure. You know what? I don't really get a sense of the character. Perhaps story is what you need. You know, you got story and you got structure, but it's not moving me. Maybe we need something for the mind to sort of light it up, some imagination. But you you know what? I want some bounce to this. Maybe try specs, you know, mix a little music in. Do go to the musical aspects of things. And so that's that's sort of what I do. And then um the the interior process is is it often happens whereas maybe I'm reading something and then then I'm like searching myself to see how does this connect to something that I've that I feel. Mm -hmm. And then I think about the form. So it might go facts, feeling and then form, okay, right? And other times I hear and I'm moved by something like we talked about with George Floyd, right? Which is a thing that baggers intellect, right? It just, just takes it out and it becomes, it goes from heart to head to hands. Sometimes it's head, heart, hands. Sometimes it's heart to head to hands. What do I mean by that? There's the form, make, there's, the, there's the intellectual, there is the feeling and emotional, and then there's the form that we have to come to in order to make sure that both the head and the heart find some sort of harmony that other people can then um, latch on to and understand what the head and the heart are trying to say. So it's multiple ways depending upon what's hitting me and, and, and what is the approach I think is going to get at it. Nice. How often do you write? Just like... I write every day. Um, every I write day. every day. Um, it's, um, it doesn't mean it's always happening at the same time. <clears throat> Yeah. But I have found this every day. And, it's, and, it's, and that's when I say by writing, what I mean by that is active writing, revision, editing, um, something that has to do. There's a, there's a piece that's being edited, a piece that's being revisioned, something that's being written. 
right? It's all the time. So it's always something happening. And the person who, who made me believe that that was possible was Langston Hughes. When I got older, I wasn't enamored of Langston's poetry as much. I loved his stories. I loved his essays and I loved his takes on things. I loved his, his sort of musical theater. But Langston was a person, he's pr probably one of my favorite literary characters, given figures, given that this was a man who was constantly on his hustle, Akeem. This dude yeah. had something going on all the time, whether <laughs> it was a newspaper article, whether it was yeah. an essay, whether it was teaching. I mean, this guy just constantly, something is happening, and he seemed to be able to handle it with, with a plum. And so he was a big inspiration for, for how to to keep keep it going and not to just write one thing. Well, what Langston showed me is that is that we're a sort of chorus of voices. You know what I'm saying? We're a choir. Yeah. It, it doesn't. You don't have to have just one voice. You know, sometimes yes, there's one of your voices going to step forward as a soloist, but that soloist is being supported. That is so beautiful. It's just another thought that's come to my mind now. When I write, yeah. I have my girlfriend and I have a good friend of mine called uh, Yusuf, mm -hmm. who I. I bounce some of my ideas off and, you know, just test it sometimes. Because I'm not the most self-confident person in the world and I think that will come with time. Mm. Um, do, do you do anything like that? Do you bounce your poetry off to anybody else? Do you have somebody else read your stuff or is it all kind of just, I've written this, well, this can live in the space, this can live in the world now? That's very interesting because I do, um, I, I work, run stuff past my wife who she's an educator, but she's nowhere near like creative in that sense. Because first and foremost, I want to make sure that an intelligent individual, right, could actually get what I'm saying. There are certain pieces I will run past certain poets who are friends of mine, because I know that this is the kind of thing that is in their sort of, you know, wheelhouse. This is the type of thing that they get and they understand. And they would understand the history of where I'm trying to come from with this. Um, other things, no. Um, I may not bounce off everything because if that might be for a client. But I do bounce stuff a lot of my, my writing partner, Marlon Carey, who's in the group Shakespeare to Hip Hop, which we do, you know, this thing about, uh, uh, we do a lot of stuff, but Shakespeare is the thing that we tend to concentrate on. And he's a person who, who the guy who I probably most say outside of my wife, I call him up. Okay. I'm like, hey, 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 check this out. You know, what do you think? What do you think? What do you think? And so he'll, he'll give me his thoughts on it. Um, tell me where it's like, yo, you know, that, that metaphor you just, you just kicked, man, that image um, is something that is replete throughout your work. You might want to be careful with that or at least think about all the images that you've had which are like that and put them into a piece because there's clearly something you're trying to explore. Mm -hmm. And so since he's a close reader and a close listener of my work because we've been partners working together for over a decade now, uh, he's a person who I trust, you know, to sort of keep me <clears throat> straight and honest about this. Uh, that makes me think about my university experience, actually. When I was at uni, it was a time where, you know, the creative juices were really flowing. You're away from home. Mm -hmm. there's, there's very few inhibitions. You're just kind of you and discovering you, you know. Mm -hmm. And with that, your writing is taking new shape, new form. At university, can you tell me about where you went to university and what writing was like for you there and things that you were introduced to and, and how that shaped things for you? Well, um, I did not go to an undergraduate university. Okay. My mother, my mother uh, because of her religion, we were raised Jehovah's Witnesses they were very discouraging of a college education right. and wanted you to use whatever intellect and wherewithal you had for the glory of, of their belief in God. Um, I left that and basically started doing working and doing my thing and then wound up going to get a master's degree. Um, the university I went to, um, they liked what I did, saw what I did. I applied to it. 
And they said, if you'd like to come here, we'd love to have you and maybe give you some dough. <laughs> so <laughs> I was like, I was like, what was that last part? Could you say, <laughs> <laughs> say that again? Could you say that again? Yeah, I wasn't quite sure I heard you. So, so they, they, they gave me my, my master's degree. Well, they didn't give me anything because I worked my butt off for it, especially if you didn't have an undergraduate degree, you know, and mm -hmm. I had been used to taking, you know, liberties with punctuation. So there were things I had to sort of retrain myself on about the use of punctuation and, and writing essays and exploring and, and staying with thought and all of that. But I worked, I worked, 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 worked at it, right? And so I was eventually got, got conferred my degree and it was an extraordinarily fruitful time for me. You know, um, for me, people who were on fire, you know, with, with the idea of, of words and what they could do and people who were challenging. And it was always another book to read, always another article to check out, always somebody involved in these pockets of discussions that had to do with literature and where you could take it. And for me, it was extraordinarily uh, explosive because, because it was a master's program. Right. It wasn't peopled with undergrads, you know, who had just gotten a college degree. It was yeah. people with with folk who had written books, people who had always also taught, who had their PhDs, but were going back to get to get a master's degree in something they loved doing, but couldn't because they got on the job track. Yeah. You know, and so they were bringing this wealth of real world experience. And, and then it was also, of course, the, the people who had just gotten their undergrad who brought this youth, you know, vigor and, and experience to it. And then and so that meant that the teachers, all of the educators had to be like, on their stick because they had to be able to go back and forth speaking to people with doctors as well as people with undergrads. Yeah. And then there was also a, a group of people who had matriculated in who had come from the slam poetry, po performance poetry world. So, so we kept the professors on their toes as well. In terms of a written piece and a mm -hmm. piece that will live on a piece of paper, in a book, in an anthology, mm -hmm. compared to pieces that roll off the tongue, dance, make people move, and can live in the space of a poetry slam. Talk to me about the differences um, in terms of attacking it and, and how you go about writing those. Ah. Um, you know, a poet, Roger Bonaragard said something once. I don't know if it originated with him, but I certainly got it from him. He said, for him, he thought that the differences between those two was thinking about yourself as riding on a train and looking at the scenery, right? That, that a slam poem or performance poem is is a piece where whereas you're on the train and the scenery's rushing past you it's still beautiful and all of that your mind rests on something for a minute and then it's gone but but you still have this beauty of the ride that you've been on whereas a written poem is more like a piece that riding on a train and then you can pull the cord and it stops and lets you get off the train and walk around in the landscape and explore it with a bit more detail mm -hmm. that both of those experiences are, are are beautiful experiences depending upon which one you need right and and so so neither is more important than than the other but it really is just a matter of what is your feeling i often think of it as as what do i have you know on my playlist I got Jay-Z bumping right up against Beethoven. You know what I mean? <laughs> and, so, nice, nice. and so it's like, okay, you know, sometimes I need to, you know, to, to hear some some straight up grime, yeah. you know, and then other times I'm like, all right, you know, maybe I need some Wagnerian shit or I need, you know, <laughs> something else going on or whatever. And and so and so I, I need both of those. And I think people can can deal with both of those experiences as, as well. Beautiful. Thank you. My my heart is my heart is so full right now. I'm just I've sat, I've sat across from you you know, via Zoom, but uh, across yeah. from you and just heard you really open up, talk about 
poetry and it's it's enriched me there's so many things and names that i'm going to go and research from this, in, this <laughs> well, shoot me an email if you need me to recap yeah 100 i really appreciate your time i appreciate you joining us and, and just speaking i appreciate you from, from the heart man i wanted to ask would it be sure. possible to finish uh with a piece written by yourself maybe anything oh. that you're feeling right now from this conversation oh. we've had that you think would sum it up and wrap it up i know i put you on the spot there but let's just, <laughs> let's see how we go I don't know, man. That's a, that's a good question. Um, here we are in a sea of stars, somewhere between Venus and Mars, short-lived hominids hanging about, doing our best to figure it out. Where do we come from? Where do we go? What does it mean to question? What does it mean to know? What is this thing we've all deemed as reality? I mean, is it real? or just an imagined fallacy that we all have invented from our collective human senses? Is this world merely a screen upon which shadows are beamed as they radiate emanating from a light screamed from behind us? Why does space and time seem to confine us? Is there more to us, or are we just intelligible dust floating in this vat of galactic blackness? Does anybody really know what the fact is? Is there a being listening to prayer, or are we alone and there's nothing there? Well. I don't know the math, but I know somehow one life plus two short equals live your life now. Because here we are in this sea of stars, somewhere between Venus and Mars, short-lived hominids hanging about, doing our best just to figure it out. Aristotle, Plato, Zeno, Parmenides, Epicurus, Augustine, Sartre, and Socrates, Bodhidharma, Gautama, Kant, Protagoras, Kierkegaard, Hegel, Emerson, and Pythagoras, all of them relentlessly question dimensions that make up the makeup of human existence, the manic and the madness, the panic and the sadness, the inner and the outness, the how to be withoutness. The Greeks called us thanatoi, y'all, meaning our lives are so brief we might as well not live at all. But isn't that part of whatever beauty we possess? The fact that we're born in this flesh means we're destined for death and that we're all just borrowing breath that'll pass to another just as soon as we've left. The only moments we know we have is what the fates allow. Life is lived quick. So you're best to live now. Because here we are in a sea of stars, somewhere between Venus and Mars. Short-lived hominids hanging about, doing our best to figure it out. Thanks for being part of that, uh, Akeem, helping us figure it out, man, with this. Thank you so much, Reggie. Sure, I really brother. appreciate Re you, man. Yeah, respect and love, man. We'll Keep doing soon. what you're doing. Yes. Thank you. Thank Peace, you. Man. I appreciate you.